one of those pieces that I'm trying to remember is that as women of color in these spaces of leadership, we're also constantly told our version of leadership isn't. Yes. Right? And and this kind of recall to the ancestors, this recall to other models of, of women and strength and resilience and realizing, yeah, yeah, actually my version of leadership is mm-hmm. and will be. Welcome. I'm your host, Rohin Bajram, on a mission to redefine the faces of leadership through speaking, consulting, and writing. Unspeakable Leadership is a space to reclaim our stories and empower each other to see the value in how we, as women of color, lead. I hope you'll join me on this journey of unpacking experiences, lessons learned, sharing laughs, and likely a tear or two. Let us grow together in conversation. I am once again excited to be in conversation with another person who I have gotten to know over the last couple of uh, months into almost a year. And our paths actually crossed uh, a couple of times before really getting to know each other in the past year. Let me tell you a little bit about our next speaker. Launched in 2020, Palmyra Partners is a consulting practice that works to bridge sustainability and social justice. Its namesake, the Palmyra tree, is a nod to the founder's South Indian heritage, embodying a rooted and resilient approach to their work. Palmyra's founder, Dr. Bala Miller, has worked on sustainability with the United Nations, trade unions, and civil society for more than two decades. She earned a PhD in political science from the University of British Columbia. Dr. Bella Miller also serves on the advisory board of diversity and sustainability and is a senior advisor at National Resources Canada. She joins us today in an independent capacity. Thank you so much, Priya, for being here with us today on Unspeakable Leadership. I'm truly excited because I think every time that you and I connect, I feel this sort of sense of warmth in my heart. I truly feel like we're kindred spirits. And at one point in time, in another lifetime, we got to know each other. And so every time that I'm in your presence, I know that I'm in the presence of somebody who has not just immense love and warmth, but also an immense openness to seeing the world from different perspectives. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for that warm and generous welcome, Rubin. And in terms of kindred spirits, I feel the same way. You're definitely a soul sister. That smile that just lights up the room and you're with someone that's uh, warm and welcoming too. So it's very much a mutual admiration society in that respect. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Priya. I want to just acknowledge before we start off with a, a really important question. I remember sitting in a room in a meeting with you And it wasn't until probably a few years later that you had brought to my uh, recollection and memory to say, do you remember that time when I was sitting in that room with you in that meeting? And the reason I, I raise it is because I think of how beautiful the universe and sometimes the world brings people together multiple times. And just even in that distance between when we first met in that meeting and then even later on when you and I met through a program, 
that you were leading and, and a huge, huge thank you for everything that you've been able to co-curate with, with others. I, I will say that not only did I grow during that time, you also grew as well. And so I'm truly excited for how our conversation today, I think, is going to also reflect some of that growth in, in what we've been able to learn and, and unpack. So let me start off with the first question that I've been asking every guest who's come on the podcast. Can you share with us a little bit about your leadership journey and what drives you today? Wow. So easy question right off the bat. (laughs) (laughs) So easy. First, I can say I'm in the journey. So it's unfolding as we speak. And when I try to reflect on the path so far, I think the easiest way to talk about it would be to talk about it in terms of progressively senior roles and the ladder of job titles and how those opportunities came my way and the role of catalytic mentors, all those things. And all those things are important. Um, But Rohin, you made the very big mistake of telling me beforehand you would indulge me in tangents. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always, Priya. So I'm taking you up on that and I I want to jump off on one right off the bat. And um, the gift of your invitation to reflect on the journey, I think, for me, landed on a different set of milestones than job titles. And so I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about those. And there's four signposts, I would say, in the evolution of my lens on leadership. The first milestone is this idea of merit. As a kid, leadership came a little easy to me. I have to say, maybe I'm just bossy by nature, but I'll own it. I was just corralling the neighborhood kids or sorting out little playground fights to then being a little older and being track team captain and swim team captain. It was really all about merit. And it was about being upfront and the accolades. I will say for sure. And that experience of growing up in India, it's a pretty competitive school environment. And all of those little kind of social cues, I think, really reinforced in my mind that if you work hard at something, you're going to get recognized and your talent's going to get recognized and you're going to go far. And I've internalized that view of leadership. It's a very kind of pushing energy around leadership, quite young. And I think that sat with me for quite a ways. And I'd say the second lens on leadership kind of milestone was around motivation. And in my early career, in my 20s, um, starting with the UN and then working with a large NGO based in the UK, um, leadership and success also seemed to come pretty easy, if I'm honest. I, I found that initial focus on self and accolades, I think, started to expand outward as I grew. And when I moved to Canada at age 16, I think I really found my voice as a social justice advocate, and and that pivoted my understanding of leadership as service. And that really stayed with me in my career choices that followed all the way up to my early 30s, and promotions and advancement came at regular intervals. And I was hungry for the climb, to be really honest, really hungry and motivated. So that second sort of pivot was, was motivation. I was fortunate enough to be a senior director in my early 30s and had to learn about what that was like to manage teams and have difficult conversations and cut my teeth on all of that sort of executive building stuff. And even at this time, I think my faith in merit and talent was not really shaken, but I was starting to have an awareness of what you and I have talked about frequently, Rohin, which is being the only one in the room, in air quotes, mm-hmm. often in terms of race, sometimes by gender, and then sometimes those two things intersecting, but still there was this hungriness and motivation for the climb. 
in that leadership journey. And then sort of the third pivot is kind of a sad pivot. <laughs> it's this mediocrity and malaise. And mm-hmm. after my 30s in this last decade, my runs on leadership had to pivot because the knee grazes and the concussions delivered by bumping up against systemic barriers to advancement started to come my way fast and furious. Mm-hmm. And looking all around me, I could just see like mediocrity being consi- consistently rewarded. No other explanation other than systemic power and privilege doing their thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then those bumps and knee grazes, I think really just, yeah, this malaise that started to set in in me. And that was until at the start of the pandemic, I was going through some real challenges in, in my understanding of myself as a leader around Black Lives Matter, around the pandemic. How do we navigate contributing to institutions while staying true to values? I think a lot of folks of color were navigating that in a similar way around that time. And then there was some really powerful words by Kaleki Okokor the British Nigerian actress and director that landed hot in my ears off a tweet. Mm-hmm. And they landed at this time of like deep reckoning in my leadership journey. And this is what she said, and I'm paraphrasing butchering her sentiment. But she said something to the effect of, I don't want to sit at someone else's table so I can be told to get up when they get tired of me. I don't hold anything. Uh, and that was my wake-up call to this sort of fourth pivot in my 40s around mobilization as leadership and realizing that my purpose really over the next 10 years of my career is to bridge sustainability and social justice. And, and that was really my calling to set up my own banquet hall through Paul Meyer Partners. Because really, I think the wicked challenges of our time are not going to be solved if we continue deep patterns of exclusion in terms of who gets to sit down at this leadership table. But also, I think, through our common language around transformational change, that the changes we want to see as leaders need to start in our inner worlds, an inner mobilization that goes beyond merits and accolades and talent and champions. It's deep inner work on how we want to show up and how we'll bring others along, I think, more importantly. And I sat there thinking about all of these M's, merit to motivation, mediocrity, malaise, mobilization. And I thought, oh, wow, aren't I deep? <laughs> and then I sat for a second and I thought, actually, no, no, you're really not. And I realized I just defaulted to a very deep archetype in, in Hinduism, which is that life progresses in forged stages. And in that journey, you start off as a student, you're starting life, you're learning, and then you move to a householder where you're encouraged to start a family and enjoy pleasure, but also to act ethically. And after you fulfill your family obligation, you start to detach from material things and start to give back. And then finally, you renounce all of that and start to pursue a more spiritual path in preparation for rebirth by going back to simplicity. And so I think in some ways, my cultural upbringing and narratives have informed those pivots in a deep pattern, predictable, surprising way. But um, but there you have it. Wow. Oh, Priya, there's so many things that I want to say thank you for. Just from what you've shared, I can imagine anyone who's listening has the ability to almost pinpoint where they might be in their leadership journey, right? From a spiritual lens in terms of what you've shared with regard to the deep archetype within Hinduism to just even from a young age, how you were able to 
see that the more that you did something, the more that it was rewarded and it was rewarded positively. And so that that hunger and that thirst gets nurtured. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, leadership isn't just something that is done to you. Leadership is something that you take on and you embody. And then the wall, the wall that sometimes gets heavy handedly put on us and imposed on us that to some extent shatters our ground, shatters everything that we thought we knew about the world and what we saw and the lenses through which we saw the world and what that then requires in terms of rebuilding. Mm. And I really appreciate that your acknowledgement is to not look outside, but to rather look within. It's not an easy process. And so I ask, what has that journey been with looking within for you when you think about your leadership and when you think about things like self-care? Yeah. Uh, that's such a good question. When I think I go back to this idea of archetypes. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I moved to Canada at 16, there seemed to be this perception and the ether of South Asian women as oppressed, for lack of a better word, right? Mm-hmm. But it was also quite contextual, I think, to the pattern of South Asian immigration to Vancouver in particular. And, and the disconnect with the diaspora and being back home and changes in society that had happened, particularly in an urban context, right? And so for me, it was so odd. I didn't understand why this perception of South Asian women as oppressed was so prevalent in Canada and mainstream society. Because when I thought of who were my archetypes, what was I raised with? It was certainly not an image of oppression. And again, that's a product of very particular class privilege of growing up. English speaking in, in urban India, right? So I recognize that. But growing up in school, we were taught about the Rani of Jhansi, who was this queen who went into battle with her kids strapped on her back. And there's little mm-hmm. posters that you see of this queen. And we've had a female prime minister and we've had really notable activists and writers. And also all of these strong female archetypes that were in my sort of public imagination. That seemed very inaccessible somehow when I moved to Canada, where women of color, I think in general, were, you're just seen differently, right? And your sense of self-perception starts to change. And I was always looking to these big characters for what that experience or model of leading and balancing self-care looks like. And the older I got, I, I realized actually that model is much closer to home. It's my mother. And my mom was a single parent, raised three children in extremely difficult circumstances. She's also a PhD, and her PhD is in post-colonial literature, and she's also been a head of department, and she's also moved continents and done all of these incredible things. But one of the things that struck me about my mom is that she just had this complete capacity to sit still and be content in stillness. And I realized as I got older, she didn't have the luxury of deep rest. Um, and, and that's something that really influenced how I was showing up as a leader. And it was only when she retired from her career as a university professor, and I saw what deep rest looked like for her mm-hmm. and the physical and spiritual and emotional kind of reset that it offered her. And it really made me think, oh, I don't want to get to 60 and then do that work. And so I think really it was my mom's retirement as as a model of what self-care needs to look like more consistently 
that was a bit of a wake-up call for me to try to make some of uh, those pivots in my own life towards more self-care. Mm-hmm. But it's a tough one, I think. Yeah. To get consistent. It, yeah. It truly is. And and I often reflect on how early on in my career and my leadership journey, what we would always often hear in terms of self-care was go for walks in nature and take some great bubble baths, right? And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love both. I will say I do love both. And yet they were not good enough, right? They're the ongoing coming up against the wall or the systemic barriers or the continuous microaggressions mm-hmm. on a daily basis, particularly when you get to a certain level of leadership. I, I actually was reflecting on how much happier I was when I was in a certain bandwidth of leadership where I felt a more sense of control and more autonomy versus the more that I start to climb up in other roles and that sense of autonomy and that sense of control got less. And so the activation of self-care became critical, if not um, a necessity. And so the messages that we keep getting are take good bubble baths and go for long walks. And we're not getting the other message, which is the importance of deep rest. I do wonder about the kind of capacity that we're trying to require of ourselves to stay within this window of tolerance of I can handle this whatever comes my way I'll be fine and if we're only going to learn that like you said at 60 what kind of life are we living up until that point and so these are sort of questions and I know it's totally existential questions because I think that this is what makes up the world but yeah, it's something that I think I'm genuinely struggling with and also grappling with as I, ma- I imagine others are. And so my my question, is this such a thing as choice? Mm. It's goosebumps right? in terms of reson- resonance of what you're describing. And I think this is also, yeah, a, a really challenging kind of question to rest with. Um, and I think there is, to a certain degree, Ravine, an illusion of choice you pointed to it, it's a very specific context that we're speaking from and that we share, actually, you and I share to a certain degree. We're both fairly educated women of color with healthy paying jobs in large institutions mm-hmm. and the privileges that some of that economic and professional kind of success and recognition brings. And we're also both raising sons of color in one of the most expensive mm-hmm. cities in the world. And we're constantly navigating the seeming plethora of choice for self-care, of choices to access self-care. And yet, like you said, the mainstream messages that we get, despite the challenges that we might face in navigating this life, is that somehow we can magically, if we want it badly enough, choose balance and choose happiness and choose self-care. But these benchmarks, right, of, of self-care even, rarely consider our own pathways of possibility for accessing that mm-hmm. choice, or even if the matrix of choices we have are any good. And what do I mean so by true. that? What do I mean by that? I think like balancing career and family and our own needs for self-actualization. I'm thinking back to something I, I read in my early years of working in consumer advocacy, early 2000s. And I was working on patterns of consumption, right? And one of the things I remember that I was really struck by was patterns of consumption 
of the North, like average North American at the time would mean we'd need four more planets in terms of resource outputs. And I remember being really shocked by that. And that number's gone up <laughs> since then, even though we're working really hard to, to change that. But Barry Schwartz is an American economist and had a book out some, sometime around then called The Paradox of Choice. And in it, he takes a very sort of standard economic view and he takes it on. And, and the view is this, that we assume more choice means better options and then therefore more satisfaction. And what he does in that book is to really warn us about choice overload, right? Because if you have too much choice, it can make you question your decisions before you even make them. And it can set you up for crazy expectations. And in this book, he makes this really counterintuitive argument that actually, if you eliminate a bunch of choice, you can really greatly reduce stress and anxiety in your life. And I remember reading it and being really struck by it. And it made a lot of sense in terms of the sort of like crazy consumption that we were seeing in the face of also from a global perspective, like great inequity and and, uh, wage inequity and all these inequities. And so what's the lesson in that for women like us, Rohin? Mm. Deficits all over the place. Like why on earth would we want less choice and not more? We're already working 10 times harder for the same rewards, same recognition. What if we stop for a second and ask this question? Are we facing an illusion of choice between advancement in our careers and leadership and self-care? Because when we peel back the layers, as you said, we see our our capacity for self-care and nourishment is eluding us because our pathways of possibility are dictated by having to choose pathways that are set between a hundred hierarchical, colonial and extractive institutions that were not designed for us as leaders. Or if we're lucky, we're making a choice between a hundred of those kind of extractive institutions and the one unicorn values aligned institution that has somehow magically been created and usually nine times out of ten by women of color. I mean, are those real choices? Maybe not. And maybe for us, the illusion of choice will fall away when our choices are actually in a world where the unicorns are the norm. The extractive organizations are the anomalies. Oh. Yeah. Maria, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) Honestly, what you've just offered, the fact that you've just raised that the illusion of choice is because the the value alignment, like I really want to pick up on, on the value alignment that I think so many of us as women of color are, are sitting in, in that tension with, mm-hmm. right? The continuous misalignment mm-hmm. of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to change and transform, being so misaligned with values of dignity and integrity and truth-telling and you know, relationality. And, and, and there's a bunch more values that, when that is happening, not just once, twice, but 365 days a year, mm-hmm. it's the illusion that we actually have choice in the matter as to how we can show up or do things differently. I want to say thank you for raising that. And thank you for acknowledging the truth in that. Because if we continue to falsify that, we can just make it. Yeah. If we just work harder, then we create such a facade. Yeah. 
of how we're actually living. And that then has a ripple effect on our family, our kids, ourselves, to the point that our bodies are physiologically going to be changed by those environments that are not made or designed for us. Do you know a woman or a friend who this episode may resonate with? Share this episode with them. They might just need to hear this today. How do you stay the course that values you? Oh, I, I don't know that I have the answer to that, Rohit. <laughs> and related to that, right? where to find the hope? Yes. To keep going. And so back to the self-care thing and that nudge from watching my mom. I think it's for each of us individually trying to find the thing that makes us feel whole and trying to access that in whatever way we're able to. And so it's not the bubble bath and the go to the hot yoga and gosh, especially this West Coast living. It's a whole archetype in and of itself. But you know, it's to kind of sit with self. I think I, I do come back to that in, inner peace. And I haven't cracked that. I don't know. Yeah. And that's okay. We're, we're all kind of messily feeling our way through what this looks like. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, something that I've recently come to is creative outlets. Mm. But just what you said about the weight in the body that we carry mm-hmm. somatically from starting to um, have to be leaders in spaces that weren't designed for us. Yeah. And there's data on this mm-hmm. in terms of the long-term health impacts on uh, blood pressure and stroke and heart attacks and all sorts of uh, maladjusted things that show up in our bodies because of all these unspoken, largely unspoken yeah. burdens that women of, of color are internalizing in our bodies as we're trying to make this effort of showing up and surviving and thriving. And, and for that to be our narrative and not that here's one more space where we're actually being beaten down and having to show up and, and be resilient. Um, and if you'll indulge me another tangent. Yeah. I wanted to share a little bit that's been kind of healing and hopeful for me, right? And I think when I say these words, it's going to sound dismal and unhopeful. Um, but the process of articulating, mm-hmm. the process of verbalizing something painful and held in the body can be also releasing. And so it's really with that intention that I'm sharing i'm so excited Um, yes please (laughs) there's no label a little bit of words from me and it's called vestigial appendage and in biology that's you know the thing that in evolutionary terms is some kind of organ or a little something that you've inherited through your evolutionary journey that stayed with you and maybe it doesn't have a purpose but maybe it does i don't know we don't know how these little parts of the whole to make us, right? So here it is, vestigial appendage. Creaking bones and tired sinew, bloodshot eyes from staring at screen too long. Uncoil from the black cage of an office chair, unfurling a stretch, reaching towards unknown ancestors in the heavens. Glance downwards at the bulge in my belly. Child long vacated, yet fupa persists grotesquely, like a vestigial appendage at odds with fit mommy blogs endlessly scrolled. Cheating bones and tired sinew, 
uncoil from the back cage of an office chair, unfurling a stretch, reaching towards unknown ancestors in the heaven. Chiding pity in mocking whispers, they say, what does she know? Poor child. What does she know of girth and bellies, magic and saris, of chicken curry bubbling over coconut husk fire and Catholic ire, of outstretched legs in a circle on the church kevy, of the company of kinwomen nightly? Chiding and mocking whispers, they say, what does she know, Pavampule, of what it is to be unburdened and washed clean? by evening breeze off the Arabian Sea, kissing every fold and dimple, till the weariness is whittled away, leaving you whole once more. Receiving this chiding like an errant child, head hangs low, creaking bones and tired sinew recoil into the black cage of an office chair, crumpled and deep. Priya, that's so beautiful. You you wrote that? Oh my gosh. I did. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. The visualization and the ability, I think, to embody what's not only happening in the body, but also the connection to the physical aspects of where we often find ourselves, like in spaces and in and sometimes chairs. And then what that means to reflect on a connection to a higher self, our ancestors, and the questions, what does she know? Thank you so much for sharing. I am curious, because I don't know anything about spoken word. Is this the first time that you have done this? Very first, yes. A very nervous first share of publicly even saying that I write oh, such things. Thank you very much for offering a brave and, and safe space and holding it so well. And thank you for being so trustworthy in sharing of yourself. Like I think, oh, you are onto something, girl. This is this is going to add a whole nother layer to your bio and to who you are and the gift that you have to share with the world. So I, I really hope you pursue it and you continue. You have such an incredible talent of the written word. Thank you so much, Ravine. Yeah, it definitely came full circle in terms of this. How do we navigate these spaces and what's it doing to our bodies and where do we go for hope? And I think one of those pieces that I'm trying to remember is that women of color in these spaces of leadership, we're also constantly told our version of leadership isn't. Yes. Right. And, and this kind of recall to the ancestors, this recall to other models of, of women and strength and resilience and realizing, yeah, yeah, actually my vision of leadership is and will be. Yes. And, and how we have to keep giving ourselves those messages and holding on to those images of alternate yeah. as a way of showing up. I, I, and I, I think spaces like this to articulate what that alternate looks like from the norm and what we're told is the norm and what we have to squeeze ourselves into yeah. to fit that and be acceptable and be palatable and not too much. And I, I can't help but wonder as, as part of that alternate embodiment of a different way of leading that 
to get there, we need to unlearn all of these defaults because they have been ingrained in our bodies and our minds and our souls. And so some of that muck needs to be almost chiseled away, cut away and discarded in order for the healthy parts of who we have always been to really emerge and and to come through. And so I ask at this stage, as we get closer to ending our time, and that is, if you could give one piece of advice to anyone who is early on in their leadership journey, or maybe somebody who's in their leadership journey and reflecting on everything that we shared, what would that advice be? I don't know. It's a couple of things. It's a couple of things. I came late to the game in understanding mind-body connection and some of this somatic work. Uh, And if there's something I'd encourage folks to do, if they're age-wise younger, is to explore that connection as, as much as you have the capacity to do it. Because I think there's something about intuition and particularly feminine intuition that is seated in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And the more we are forced into hyper-rational, uh, emotionally void environments, the less we come to rely on that, that very strong trait that should be valued and celebrated and nurtured and, and allowed, allowed mm-hmm. as just as valid a way to make decisions and to navigate leadership. So a couple of things. First is to trust your intuition. Another would be to find your tribe, even if it's a tribe of one. I know for me, all through my career and all of these different institutions that I've worked with, having you know a trusted face to be able to come to in those moments of microaggression or in those moments of challenge. And really the trust part is so key because we've also been on the other side of that where that trust hasn't been held well and it's come back to bite you. So really just thinking about that tribe, you know, whether they're within the organization you work with or outside, who, who, who is that for you, mm-hmm. even if it's that person? Another one, I guess, is um, this is a hard one to, to name. Mm. Be wary of the co-opted. Oh, yeah. When I think back on my path um, in the world of work, the hurts received from people you assume should have your back because they share a demographic characteristic or they share a lived experience or they know you. The hurts from some someone that's even mentored me for over 10 years that I had deep respect for and then when came time for them to show up with integrity and they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Hurts from those types of experiences, like letdown is almost worse because you're not bracing for it. Yeah. And this is again a dramatic piece as women of color. We're in this like hyper-vigilant, perpetual, like ready for the brace mm-hmm. position. Um, and so this assumed allyship sometimes that we have with other folks of color or that, that assumed allyship, when that lets you down, I think it's almost hurt is worse, right? And, and I'll give you an example really practically of a mentee of mine mm-hmm. that, that's navigating a career in the public service told me that she reported into another woman of color and went to her for advice on what it's like to navigate, you know, these positions. And really the advice she got was the suck it up. I did it and you can do it. And that was the advice. And, and it was so hard to hear that that was the experience, right? And and it was this hard lesson in assumed allyship. And even that turn of phrase, being able to share with the mentee. So she had a way to articulate 
what that experience was. Because so, so many times we go through these things, but we don't have the words. We don't have the words that explain the experience. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's hard yeah. when you have these things that you're dealing with that you can't name. Yeah. And there's no vocabulary around it because it's not the hegemonic vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess that's something to watch out for, right? And be, be alert. And then the last is just to conserve and steer your energy to what's regenerative for you and those around you. And and that can look like whatever the hell you need it to yeah. <laughs> Uh, there is no way, and if somebody's telling you there is a way, be wary of them too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Priya, thank you so much. Just being able to, I think, have this very real conversation with you has been such a blessing. And I'm also, I, I'm carrying this lump in my throat as I'm talking to you, which doesn't help because I'm meant to speak. <laughs> Like I'm meant to speak eloquently. Which you are. Oh. You're so kind. You're so kind. I'm even noticing that in my body. And that's something that you've helped me in my own journey become more attuned to and become more respectful of. I think I had always thought that when when I had a flushed face when I was trying to speak or or the lump would form in my throat, I would almost hold this resentment towards my body of... Um, of it like almost going against the very thing that I needed it to do, which was to work in that moment. And I've now created a different relationship because of what you shared with me over the time that we've gone to know each other of how our bodies are telling us messages and they're giving us cues. And so I'm even sitting through this, holding this lump in my throat with honor because you are you're helping us through the advice that you've given in really understanding that um, there's an opportunity for us to reflect on what our bodies are actually helping us do and see the world differently. So that when we have those interactions and we have those, um, you know, sort of rifts in our relationships that it allows us to then lean on our intuition and to make decisions from that place of, uh, such an important source of memory and strength as opposed to reliant on our heads that we often think that the brain is the the best organ within our body and it is but it's not the only organ that is at play in being able to live a life of of love and thriving beyond just the survival so thank you thank you for our time together thank you for sharing the spoken word that you have created and aired for the first time. And thank you just always for the generosity in your heart and in your mind and and what you've shared. I appreciate our time. Thank you, Rohin, likewise. Take care. You too. The regular respiratory rate is roughly 12 to 20 breaths per minute. Each breath marks a beat in the symphony of existence. Imagine by age 65, a soul would have taken over 683 million breaths. Let that number sink in. Yet, in the cadence of life, we are confronted 
with the stock reality that our vitality, our breath, is based on the harmony of health, functionality, and environments that either create a balance of rest and eustress or diminish this balance. As I reflect on my conversation with Priya, the word pivot reverberates three memories for me. First is the comical struggle of Ross, Chandler, and Rachel in Friends, a series that I used to watch relentlessly when I was a young girl. And to be honest, I sometimes take a look at some of those episodes from time to time, more as an escape and comedic laughter. You might remember that in one of those episodes, Ross desperately shouts, Perfect! Perfect! as they navigate trying to move a couch down a flight of stairs. For me, pivot in this regard is a humorous metaphor for the twists and turns we face where adaptability becomes the essence of survival. Second, I think about the last few years. We have lived through a pandemic. I don't think any of us five, ten years ago would have ever thought that that would have been part of our lifetime. So I think of the pandemic era, the resonance of pivot, as a revelation and a resounding call to the action that we all took up in different sectors, in different industries, and in different jobs. This word unveils the latent potential within institutions and organizations, and it also demonstrated the breathtaking pace at which change and transformation can unfold. You might remember that at one point in time, comments like, we can't do that, or we've never done that, or that's not possible, all dissolved. In the pandemic, everything that wasn't possible sometimes came to be. Lastly, and thirdly, I think of a literary gem, a book that I'm currently reading, and that is The Pivot Year by Brianna Weist. Power and poetry converge in its pages, and it compels us to pause and contemplate the offerings of transformation and growth. So I'd like to end with an excerpt from the book. Maybe you don't need to find more energy. Maybe you just need to find a dream that makes you actually want to get up in the morning. Maybe you need to find something that gives back more than it takes. Maybe you need to stop trying to be good at the hundred things that do not light up your soul and finally choose the one that does. The one that asks you to risk to lay your heart bare, to try again, even though you're scared. You're not failing because you're not motivated. You're not supposed to get far on a path that was never yours to walk. Let these words linger as you deeply consider how each pivot in your life can shape your destiny and lead you toward the path your soul 
was destined to travel. There is an African proverb that says, "Before you destroy a bridge, make sure you can swim." What steps do you need to reflect on as you make some choices that honor you and your purpose? Always remember, the world needs more of you being just you. As always, take care of yourself and see you soon.